Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ninth Story Podcast. This is Season 6, Episode 14. I'm Immortal Alexander. And I'm Jeanette Andromeda. We discuss the process and life that is writing with the help of guest authors and experts. Today's topic is traditional storytelling. Our guest is author and traditional storyteller, Lynette Ford. Lynette tours the country sharing her tales, and we first heard her stories this year at the Lidditz Storytelling Festival in Pennsylvania. Welcome, Lynette Ford, to the Ninth Story Podcast. Thank you very much. Call me Lynn. I will. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Lynn. So, Lynn, uh, first thing I want to jump into is can you give us just a brief overview of what traditional storytelling is? Um, There are a lot of people who uh, try to limit stories to what folklorists study. In my mind and heart, a traditional story is one that has been passed on over generations, and it carries within it a, a motif to which just about anyone can relate, but it is being passed on in a tradition of spoken word initially. Um, And then eventually these stories go from familial tales to um, perhaps village or community folk tales. And then they grow from there into something that can touch just about everyone. So it's a matter of what was once spoken perhaps by a single grandmother um, to her family, um, becomes something that is the foundation of the ethos and um, education and entertainment of a much larger group. And Lynette, can you tell our audience about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, I call myself Afro-Latchin. It's easier than all the hyphens in the family. Um, I'm very proudly African-American with a combination of family roots in um, Africa, uh, the West Indies, the Carter Plantations of Virginia, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, Scots-Irish, German, French, and English. Mm -hmm. Thus, we go by the geographical region and uh, refer to ourselves as Afro-Latchin. That's African-American Appalachian of mixed heritage. And that's the influence on my storytelling traditions, too. So what sparked your transition from... Actually, I'll back that up for one second. In your introduction to Hot Wind and Boiling Rain, you talk about being in the library and sneaking around to get to the books that you wanted to read. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Which I love. So what sparked your transition from being a reader creeping around the library to being a storyteller sharing these stories? Um, well, honestly, I think it was the other way around. Oh. I was telling stories. My mother said at the age of three, at that age, they were called lies, you know, um, mm-hmm trying to save my neck usually. And and my mother said that they were just funny. Nobody would believe them because they were too ridiculous. Um, But it was just what my family did. I I heard stories from just about every elder in the family, including my dad, who was my favorite storyteller, and my mother always read to us. So I started off telling the stories, and I could read before I was four years old. 
And um, by the time I was 10, I knew how to scare my sister and some of my cousins with those uh, spooky stories. And that's what I did. Um, getting to the library was also a family tradition. My mother would take us. But in those days, we're talking thousands of years ago, actually the 50s, um, the children had to stay in the children's section and the adults had the their section. And I'd read just about everything I wanted to read in the children's section. So that's when I started creeping over into the adult section and finding other books that fascinated me. And those, I think, influenced my storytelling um, just as much as those who had uh, told us the stories, given us the stories in the spoken word tradition. Because here in books, the stories were maintained in one form permanently. And I could always go back to it like an old friend and visit again and meet people that I wouldn't have met otherwise, such as uh, Edgar Allan Poe and Ray Bradbury. I felt that I knew them because of their books. Mm -hmm. uh, it was actually a pretty interesting story about the way you would sneak the older kids' books to the younger kids' book <laughs> section in the library in order to be able to read them. Can you tell us that particular story? Well, I, you know, it was as if I was in some kind of war. I would get on my belly and creep across. And I'm sure now the librarian knew what I was doing, but I would creep out of the children's section and crawl into the adult section. And I was afraid to stand up. I was afraid I'd be seen. So I'd sit on the floor, which meant I could only reach about the middle of the stacks. And I'd choose a book and then I'd crawl back over to the children's section with it and read it there pleasantly and put it away on the shelves in the children's section until I was done with it. Um, now I think the librarian probably knew exactly what I was doing, um, but she never said anything about it. Um, and because of that, I could grab the, the stories, the, the grim fairy tales that were grim. Those weren't in the children's section. My mother, if she'd found out, um, she would have been um, upset and she probably would have taken some books that I checked out back to the library, but um, the the adult section was much, much more interesting to me because um, all the maidens weren't fair and the witches could be even more wicked. And now I know more about witches uh, as um, elders, uh, crones, not necessarily those things that were in books. But yeah, I would sneak over there and um, Sometimes I'd sit in the adult section, but more often I would crawl back to the children's section with a book that was supposedly forbidden for me. <laughs> and how old were you when you were doing that? Oh, my goodness. I think I started when I was five or six years old. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, it was exciting, too. It was doing something you're not supposed to do, which is mm -hmm. always appealing to smart little kids, you know. <laughs> and um it was like my grandmother telling me, don't touch the flowers. So I would touch every one and then look at her to see what was she going to do about it. I'd already <laughs> touched them, you know. Um, so it was, don't read these books. So obviously I was going to get into those books. And um, yeah, I did that until I was issued my uh, so-called adult library card at the ripe old age of 13. And by that time, I'd read a whole lot that, you know, I had to discover some new authors by then. I love it. So I obviously stories are a huge part of what 
life is for you, from your family telling stories to gobbling up whatever you could find at the library. Um, that was just more of a uh, thought than an actual question, but <laughs> where that was going. Yes, and, and I tell people that um, I probably started creeping into the adult section when I was in third grade, but actually that's probably a lie because I know I was younger than that when I started doing it. And sometimes I would be so afraid I'd, I'd bring the book back over to the children's section and then be afraid to open it. You know, should uh-huh. I read it here? Is lightning going to strike me? You know, what's going to happen? So, yeah, books were always important to me. Um, they were treasures. And um, as I said, they gave permanence to stories. If it was told, I might hear variants from different people in the family but I could always go back to the book and the story would still be the same so with that in mind since you've started creating these collections of stories that started off as oral storytelling and now you've been transcribing them I'm very curious what changes as you make it from an oral story into something that is transcribed into these collections that you've published well I think writing the stories down Um, is more difficult for me because I can't use some of the spoken word tools. When you're reading the page, you can't see my face or my gestures. You can't hear my voice. You can find the voice of the story on the page, but I have to do the revisions that change what might be offered as a gesture or a facial expression or a certain tone of voice into something that is just as exciting and interesting and informative on the page, Um, which for me, I can't speak for others, but for me, that takes a good bit of um, creative thinking and revision before I'm comfortable with the story on the page. I can see how how that would be difficult because now that I've seen you perform live, Reading your book, I could hear your voice in these stories, actually. (laughs) In particular, yeah. yeah. (laughs) In particular, um, it was The Three Little Bears. It's, I think, the first story in your book. Uh, And whenever your little sister pops in and says, Yeah, that's right, I can hear about what you would do (laughs) as it changes into, um, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, because uh... people can't see, and they can't see the expression that I'm making that's showing my little sister's face. Mm-hmm. She was questioning my version of the story with her expression, and then she'd finally s- settle for it. You know, she'd say, that's right. You know, but <laughs> I don't know that she was totally invested in the way I was telling the story. Um, I have to get that down on the paper, and it's not, it's not something that you can see with your eyes. You have to um, creatively envision it in your mind. So, um, yeah, I try to make it visible, but it's on the printed page. Were there ways, like sharing your, uh, once the story was written, were there ways where you took what you had written and shared it with people to see if they could still get that same emotion from what you'd written on the page? Well, my way of testing it um, is often to uh, send the story to a friend, um, but someone who is a good um, critic of the story, 
Uh, not somebody who's going to go, oh, yes, this is wonderful, mm-hmm. or I like it, because that really doesn't help you to do your revisions. It makes you feel good, but it doesn't give you the information that you need. And one of my best um, honest critics uh, who is loving, too, is my husband, who doesn't consider himself a storyteller, but he'll, and, and his commentary may be, mm-hmm, and that's it, you know, <laughs> so then I have to out, you know, pull out the responses. Why is it? Mm -hmm. But I try to hand it over to someone else to read rather than read it aloud myself, because I feel like I'm too judgmental on it once I've gotten it onto the the page. So there are a few people who help me by, you know, looking at the work and telling me whether they see it or they understand it or it needs something else. Because just to fill the audience in listening to this, with traditional storytelling, part of what Lynn in in particular, you were really amazing at this, is you feed off the audience and react to the audience as you're telling the story. So it's like taking that whole aspect of a story out once you put it on the page. So even though it's kind of cementing it in a way, it's also, Mm -hmm. it's never never quite the same as hearing it, but you get close. (laughs) Well, that's that's my hope. Um, and because I'm trying to make those empathetic connections with um, the audience, and I usually call them my participants because I can't be a storyteller without the people who are listening to me and responding to me. Um, it's going to be different for each audience because I'm trying to um, respond to what I'm getting from them. And I want the story to be a gift to the participants, not um, look at me, but rather here's a gift, let's open it together. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's something you can't do on the printed page, although I'm very grateful that one variant of each of the stories is on the printed page, just as I was grateful for the ones I could find in the books in the library. However, as a storyteller, the tradition is to give that gift to your participants and make them a part of the experience of the story. Lynn, what is your process like when creating a new story that will be shared orally? Um, First, there's a lot of um, letting it lie fallow. I'm looking at it in my own mind and seeing the ideas, the concepts, the path of the story. And that may take a little while. So it might appear that I'm doing nothing, but I'm working it out in my head. The next thing is to just talk story, as it's called in Hawaii. I start to tell the story to myself, um, out loud, walking around the house. And then I may test the story with um, some of the people with whom I volunteer at an adult care facility that's down the the street from me. Or if it's for younger ones, going into a school and telling it there. I think storytelling is um, on-the-job training. You learn it by doing it. And if I'm honest with myself, I can tell by the responses whether I've got it. So I, I actually do the work of revising the spoken word by telling the story. Um... If it's something that's very rough, you're not going to hear it, of course, at a festival or at a conference, but I may have tried it locally, coffee houses, schools, um, uh, adult care facilities, whatever group 
might be the so-called audience for the story. Um, once I've test run it in that way, then I start to put it down on paper. And while I'm at the keyboard, I'm actually saying it out loud while I'm typing it in, um, which sometimes leads to a revision. And that's a good thing. And once I've got it down on paper, I'm one of those tactile kinesthetic learners. By touching the keyboard and talking to myself as I'm telling it and having it appear on uh, the screen through the movement of my fingers, I pretty much got the story in my head. However, it's going to change depending upon who's listening to the story. That makes a lot of sense with how your stories seem to come through. And uh, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, so I'm going to kind of backtrack with a different thought. But you had mentioned that your favorite storyteller is your dad. So I'd mm -hmm. love to hear a little bit more about your father and the stories that you've learned from him. Oh, my father was a wonderful, what you call a natural born storyteller. Um, his name was Edward Macklin Cooper. Um, his nickname was Jake. And he was uh, in the last graduating classes of the Tuskegee Airmen, but he never talked about that much. He always seemed to work two jobs. And when he would come home from work on Saturday evenings uh, or late Saturday afternoon, he had worked the only day that was usually just one job. And that was going to be our storytelling evening, which was always a thrill and he would make up things and he would tell spooky stories, which I think my sister hated, but I absolutely <laughs> loved. And he would tell old folk tales um, that I could trace to the roots of such stories as the ones that people might call Br'er Rabbit stories, tales of animals like possum, rabbit, and brother bear, and brother wolf. He would also, when we were in the car, um, tell stories. And my dad was one of those fellas who, if he sees a dirt road, he's got to go down it. <laughs> so after a while, my mother and my sister and brother did not want to ride with my father. But I loved to jump in that car and we would go to, we eventually called it a place called Lost. That's where we were going. <laughs> that was the direction. Um, He'd start talking and we'd get lost, but he would have told me stories. And I didn't realize until I was a grown woman that I'd heard stories that my own sister and brother hadn't heard because we were lost in the car somewhere. So, yeah, he, he used a lot of different voices. Um, you can hear that in my storytelling. And uh, he would get into a story and a, a touch of his uh, Tennessee twang would start to come out. So you'd hear a bit of the ancestors' voices in his telling. But a lot of what you see and hear from me uh, was directly influenced by my father and by my maternal grandfather, Pop Pops. Both Alex and I got a, a smile on our face when you said Pop Pops because you shared a, like one one story about Pop Pops and all of a sudden we're like, yeah, Pop Pops. <laughs> we're just, <laughs> he's like one of our favorite <laughs> now. Well, I, I think everybody <laughs> figures they know Pop Pops. Yeah. <laughs> he was a character. He would um, he always wanted to look good and smell good. And when he worked in the garden, 
on a hot summer day, his t-shirts would be so bleached and starched that that's what you smelled was bleach and starch and um, old spice um, until Brute came out and then he switched over to Brute. Um, but he would, I don't think my grandmother ever starched and ironed his undershirts. I think he did all that himself just because he was so vain. And one time he decided that it was time to uh, let himself be a little more distinguished looking by letting a little uh, white or gray appear in his hair because um, his hair was always black. And we knew he had discovered Miss Maybelline's hair dye um, <laughs> when he was when we were younger because my dad was gray and my pop pop's hair was black. Um, and he decided he would do his own hair. He was going to dye it himself. And my, my grandma Joe was just having fits about it. She was just breathing in and trying to pray over him. And her prayer was always, Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom. Don't give me strength. Cause if you give me strength, I'm going to kill him. Lord, give me wisdom. So she was praying. And when he came out of that bathroom, his hair was jet black on top and in the back, but the sides were this strange, bright, bleached white. And he figured he looked good that way. And, uh, yeah, he looked more like Pepe Le Pew from the Warner Brothers cartoons or uh, Herman Munster's uh, Grandpa Munster. Like a lightning strike. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, he was quite a character. Um, and he'd get in trouble with, with my grandmother and she fuss at him and she'd say one time he broke the punch bowl and she said did you break my punch bowl and he's all he said was it's a possibility (laughs) anything it was just a possibility (laughs) not a yes not a no it's a possibility (laughs) it's a possibility i tried that and it didn't work for me (laughs) get away with it (laughs) and lynn what are some of your favorite uh stories to tell um, one from Pop Pops was banned from my dad because they both had versions was Possum and Snake. Um, I also love my father's uh, ghost story, um, Sift and Sand. Possum and Snake is about a possum who's foolish enough to pick up a snake and put it in his pocket. Mm-hmm. And uh, he figures that since he's done a favor for the snake, the snake will go away when it's warm enough. But the snake rises up and gets ready to bite him. And when he asked the snake why he would do such a thing, the snake said, um, a snake is always a snake. Trouble's always trouble, even when it's smiling at you. (laughs) Now, Possum goes to his friend Rabbit. He figures Rabbit always uses his head and will get him out of this sticky situation. And Rabbit tells him he doesn't understand how he could do something that dumb. (laughs) But if they go back to the place where it happened, you know, and he sees the place where it happened, maybe he'd understand it a bit better. So they walk back to the place where a rock sits at the bend in the road. And he asks Possum where he was standing. And Possum says, I was standing right here. And then he asks Snake where he was, and Snake slithers out of Possum's pocket and slides down to the road, stretches himself out, and the Snake says, I was sitting right here. And Rabbit picks up the rock the Snake had been under and boom, puts it right on that Snake's back and says, and there you are again. <laughs> there you are. And so he saves his friend, but the moral of the story is if you see trouble and you know it's trouble, 
just leave trouble alone. And I can remember that so well that I have not changed that line. That's what I heard when I was a child. The one about the, the, the ghost is about something that appears and comes across the field and it sings a song as it crosses the field and it scares the man that's in a cabin supposed to work for a farmer in the morning and it comes on in and it just keeps on singing and he starts to leave and that thing is singing and next thing you know, he's gone. Um, and when the farmer and his son see his work boots sitting there at the fence and his uh, coveralls sitting at the fence with nobody in them, um, the farmer says, I, I wonder where Jack Spratt is because that's his nickname. Hmm. And the son says, Daddy, I, I I don't care where he is. There's shadows on this field and might be something around and I'm wondering where the ghost is. And a voice comes from the kitchen of that cabin and says, I'm standing in the kitchen eating the taters sprinkled with Jack Spratt. Show tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> then my daddy would tuck me in, kiss me goodnight, and expect me to go to sleep after that. <laughs> but that those were a couple of my favorites. <laughs> Man, that was scary just hearing the shortened version of it. <laughs> like I can only imagine. Okay, goodnight, kiddo. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that that explains why I'm such a weird person, but. You know. <laughs> It, it feels good to still have those stories. It's getting more difficult now. I'd like to put together a third collection, but with the elders mostly gone, um, it's very hard putting together uh, the bits and pieces that I remember and staying true to, to what they had told me. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes the cousins don't remember at all, and my sister may have a different version than I do, and my brother may have a different version than she does. And so I try to gather. Um, as much as I can from other storytellers who have um, similar family backgrounds, knew similar stories as a child. But I honestly don't, I don't know if I'm going to have enough to put a whole third book together. I've got some stuff, but I don't know if it's mm -hmm. enough for another book. I hope so, because I'm very excited to explore some of your other books and one that we haven't read yet that is on my to-read list, but I'd love to hear some more about, is Afro-Lashian Tales, folk tales from the African-American Appalachian tradition. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that collection is? Uh, that's my very first collection of these stories from my family. And I do give a bit of background on who told the stories to the best of my knowledge and um, how I collected the stories. And I also try to give other information about um, the the storyteller from whom I collected the story and what their lives were like and what experiences were like. Um, so it's something that I put together um, deliberately not to be a picture book so that folks would make the pictures in their heads. Mm -hmm. But it's written so that um, older people can read stories to the younger ones and eventually the younger ones can pick out some stories to read and teenagers may enjoy the some of the spooky stories mm -hmm. in the the book so uh, that's the way the two first books are the the 
second one is Beyond the Briar Patch, and it's in a similar format. And and Afro-Latin is kind of an accumulation of a lot of different cultures, mm-hmm. correct? Yes, yes. It's a combination of um, African-American, Native American, and European-American um, for most of the people who refer to themselves as Afro-Latin. Now, I didn't make up the word, honestly. The word was a gift from, uh, he's a poet and a professor in Kentucky. His name is Frank X. Walker, and he created the word. Um, oh, my goodness, I'm going to say about 20 Oh, more than 20 years ago now, I think. Um, he also create, established the uh, Afro-Latin poets who were based in Louisville, Kentucky. But he created the word to remind people that the Appalachian region is a place of diversity. There are many, many families, cultures, traditions within the Appalachian hills and valleys. And the word was created when Frank realized that... Uh, in the dictionary at the time, uh, Appalachian was specifically referred to as a white person hmm. from the Appalachian region. And, you know, that left out everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I have to give Frank X. Walker credit for that word. But there are a few of us who now refer to ourselves as Appalachian. It seems like such a like a perfect word for that mixed area and that just multiple heritage is all in that same spot. Was there anything that people would call themselves before that word was invented? Um, I have a, well, she's a mentor to me, uh, Linda Goss, who was one of the founders of the National Association of Black Storytellers, told me that her dad referred to himself, uh, referred to the area as Appalachie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can remember my dad talking about Appalachicola and Appalachia this, but it was, you know, adding other things to uh, that that initial, um, the prefix. Um, I don't think we had a, a designation other than African-American, which we should take into ourselves with great pride, but it also means that we're not giving honor to the other ancestors. So when Frank made up that word, um, and he his first, well, not his first book of poetry, but one of his books of poetry is uh, Appalachian, is the title. And bam, I just snatched it, just snatched and grabbed it. It was just perfect. It let everybody know um, this is where we come from. These are our people. Uh, this is who I am. Um, that had not been the case when I was growing up. What were some traditions your family had growing up that worked their way into your stories? Um, traditions that worked their way in. Let me see. Um, sometimes I use my grandfather's opening for stories, and it lets you know he was about to tell her a folk tale or a lie. Um, <laughs> he'd say, uh, once upon a time, about time and a half ago, this didn't happen, but I'm going <laughs> to tell you about it anyway. <laughs> and, and if, when he finished a, a really tall tale, if you, if you called him on it, if you said, well, that's not true, he would always say, well, if it ain't, it should be. And I use both of those. Um, I also use call and response. Someone not saying, I'm going to tell you a story, but calling something out 
and you know that it's time for a story, you call something back. Uh, the one that I use with uh, younger kids now is let's have a story, and they, they sing back let's have a story. A tale for fun, they sing back a tale for fun. Um, so call and response, that's something that I can, I can credit to people doing that with me when I was younger. Also, um, I think the gift of pausing for a response, because in our family, if someone was telling a story and a certain part scared you, you didn't sit silent and you, you might go, whoa, or, or I was always the one that went, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That didn't make sense, you know, <laughs> and then they'd elaborate on it and the story would change. So that, that I think is a part of my story sharing too. I don't mind if, uh, especially younger ones interject something. I know that they're right with me in the story and, and they're getting deeply involved with it. And so um, it bothers me more when someone tells a little one, shh, instead of letting them go ahead and respond to whatever's being said, because I, I can tell by that response, they're getting involved, they're enjoying it, they'll carry the story with them or some remnants of the story with them. And that's part, again, of, of what was done in my family. We used to sit on the front porch in the evenings at my great-grandparents and listen to stories. We would be sitting on the floor of the porch or on the steps, and an elder would be sitting in uh, one of the porch chairs or on the porch swing telling the story. And I wanted to feel like that with others, um, and hopefully they may start their own traditions. But um, we also sat around the table and Little folks weren't supposed to talk, but we sure did listen to a lot that was being told around the, the, the table, dining room or kitchen table. So those are some of the traditions that I think have carried into my storytelling, the feeling that I want um, the participants to, to own and uh, the comfort of sharing the stories, as well as the call and response and the characterizations some of the names of the characters in my family, we didn't have Br'er Rabbit. We just had Rabbit. Mm -hmm. um, and um, a lot of the, the humor that's in the stories, I think, is part of the tradition that was passed on to me. Because um, even in the, the darkness, there's light in finding laughter in a situation. So how did you first get involved in this kind of traditional storytelling and in traditional storytelling communities in general? Well, as I said, for me, it was my family. It was our community, our neighborhood. Um, some people have referred to my dad as the uh, neighborhood griot. Uh, a griot is a, that term is a storyteller, um, a term from West Africa. As far as getting into it, it was just what we did. This is what we did. And I taught preschool for a long time and always had stories. But I would notice um, at the end of the day, the children who were still waiting to be picked up, they were leaving their teachers. They wanted to come over and hear the stories that I was telling. Hmm. The uh, way I got into a career of being a so-called traditional storyteller has to do with my children volunteering me in their classrooms. It wasn't like I had planned it. They mm -hmm. just told their teachers, I told good stories. And all of a sudden there's another door opening and a career starting. 
but the um, the uh, traditions of storytelling were something that I also experienced uh, going to powwows, um, going to different family gatherings, and eventually joining storytelling organizations where folk tales and fairy tales and mythology and epics were a part of the stories that were shared in those groups. So it was just kind of a natural progression that occurred. And when I became an, uh, a teaching artist, an artist in schools here in Ohio, um, because of the types of stories that I told, I was uh, labeled, so to speak, as a traditional teller because I wasn't telling um, more contemporary stories, although I would wrap around the folk tales some of my life and some of the things that might be happening his, um, politically or in our community. Um, the Artists in Schools program listed me as a traditional teller because of the material that I shared. How did you get involved in the uh, Lititz Storytelling Festival, Lynn? Um, <laughs> I was... I was invited. I, don't know. <laughs> uh, I think that's about the, the best way to put it. Um, someone knew my work, and I'm sure a couple other tellers recommended my voice to be a part of the Lititz Storytelling Festival. And they invited me, but they had looked at the work that I did. I have videos on the Internet, and they invited me to come and it was really, really wonderful to be at Lititz because the diversity in the program was just amazing. We had uh, Dovey Thompson, who is Lakota Sioux Apache. Um, we had Andy Offutt Irwin, who is absolutely hilarious, but he also is a musician, a, a guitarist, and he has done Shakespearean plays. Uh, there was a lot of diversity we had. Uh, I'm trying to remember who else was there. Bill Harley, uh, who whose work has been nominated for Grammys, and he does a lot of his own uh, story creating. And uh, it was just, it was a wonderful experience, just a wonderful experience. But I think, honestly, the word of mouth is what got me there as, as well as uh, a knowledge of what I do. I think that's an appropriate way to show up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy with it. I'm real happy with it. <laughs> so I know you travel a lot with storytelling now. What are some of your favorite storytelling festivals or storytelling experiences? Um, well, Lititz was a wonderful experience, and um, I'm hoping to be back there. Um, another was to tell for the first time at the uh, public library in Hershey, Pennsylvania, um, just after the Lititz Storytelling Festival on my way home. Uh, I'd never been to Hershey before, and we didn't get to see all the good chocolate stuff, but the <laughs> library was outstanding, and the kids were fantastic. Um, I also occasionally do a residency at the International Storytelling Festivals um, Center in Jonesboro, Tennessee, 
which is a week of storytelling I tell every day um, in the theater. And this is various storytellers, uh, one storyteller each week for a certain period of the year. Um, I love doing that. Um, and I also have done the National Storytelling Festival there and uh, Timpanoga Storytelling Festival in Utah uh, and um, the Talk Story Festival in Hawaii. That was exciting for me. And I've been invited to come back to Cape Clear International Storytelling Festival in Ireland in uh, the fall of 2018 which is the farthest I've ever been, and this will be my second time there. Those are some of my favorites. I know I'm leaving some out, St. Louis and uh, a couple in uh, Texas, and I've been in um, Wisconsin. I hate to leave any of them out, but uh, I've been to so many that it, it's, it's kind of blending into one fantastic <laughs> festival that goes on for a long time. I love it. That's I, I don't know. It's just like it's kind of like being a musician, but you're I, it's I don't know, in in a different kind of way. Just kind of wrapping my yeah. head around it. <laughs> well, it is. Um, I learn a lot from those storytellers who are also musicians. I think they have better business heads than some of us do. I'm not from a theater background. And when I listen to how they plan things and coordinate things and um, all that they do to prep, uh, it's always a lesson for me. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a homebody. I like mm -hmm. my home and I like to cook and my garden is now weeds, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, all this travel is, it's always exciting for me because it's not something that I had anticipated as, as a part of a career. It was something I hoped to do, but doing it is just an entirely different thing. So in your book, um, Hot Wind, Boiling Rain, Scary Stories for Strong Hearts, you share classic grim-type folk tales with dark twists. Um, how did you approach creating this collection specifically? Oh, I've always loved twisting tales, always. Um, the, first, the, the first story in there about the three bears was my spin on the three bears to scare my sister and make her go to bed. Um, <laughs> I told her that the three bears ate Goldilocks, you know, <laughs> that was easy for me. <laughs> um, but I've always looked at the, the old folk tales and fairy tales. And I don't know, my mind does some kind of if then processing, you know, what if, you know, um, then that would mean so that my sleeping beauty is a vampire and red riding hood is from a family of werewolves. Um, I just, I play, um, with the story ideas and at the back of the book, I put some of the, um, creative play that I do in my own head. I put them there as games. People can play themselves to try to twist stories. One of them became a keynote speech at Weber State University in Utah. Uh, they wanted me to speak on a Godzilla meets Cinderella. <laughs> which is one of the games that I play. <laughs> but it's a matter of playing with the ideas, um, playing with the mood of the story. Um, I never really liked Cinderella because when I was little, all I knew was the the one where she's such a wimp that the mice and the birds have to help her, and she's just... <laughs> 
you know, she needs saving. She needs rescuing. That didn't appeal to me at all. And then I found those older versions in my in my uh, treks into the adult section of the library, where the story was much darker and much deeper. And I loved them. And she wasn't a wimp. Uh, that was just my interpretation of one variant of the story. But that's the story in Hot Wind, Boiling Rain that isn't really as scary unless you're afraid of marriage. Then it's a scary story. (laughs) That one's hilarious. (laughs) I just like the idea of Cinderella kind of kind of being a bit trashy instead of this little little delicate flower. Hardcore party mode. <laughs> That's what yeah, she is. She's a party animal. Yeah. Swinging from it. the chandelier. Yeah. <laughs> Having the reception before she's even had the wedding, you know. But yeah. I thought that was a better format for her to be in. I liked it. <laughs> and uh, I just, I also love because, you know, it's always the delicate little feet, the delicate little flowers that are the most pleasure, like the most wanted female figure in all storytells and then you have Gladys the sister and how you described her and her story uh that was great (laughs) oh yeah she's she's a she's a round round robust and beautiful woman in my mind you know Mm -hmm. she's uh she's a big woman and uh she's got a big heart but that's not what um the the prince of the story is looking for he's looking for a lady (laughs) well um when I was coming up, um, I had a cousin who told me I would never be a lady Aww. because I like to climb trees and sit in them barefoot and, you know, uh, read my books in the, in the cherry tree while I was picking the cherries straight from the tree. Um, when she said um, I'd never be a lady, I thought I never want to be a lady. <laughs> and so in my mind, it's better to be a good woman than this so-called lady. So, um, yeah, the Cinderella character, uh, she's not the one that you'd really want, but Gladys, the sister, um, when the prince finds out that he's got this party animal in his hands, he takes her back to her parents and he says, something's not right with this one. Give me the one with the big feet. (laughs) But uh, Gladys is already on her way to her someone who truly loves her she's already on her way um but that line uh this one ain't right give me the one with the big feet that actually came from another storyteller and musician hilarious and such a wonderful guy michael reno harrell we were sitting over barbecue and i was telling him i needed the line um and i told him the story as i had it then and he came up with it so i make sure people know that michael reno harrell came up with the line, give me the one with the big feet. (laughs) So what kind of other research goes into these story collections as you start putting them together? Because I love your footnotes at basically after the story where you're telling the story, your version of it, you go into what it was and what it is in other cultures and, and traditionally what the story would be. Right. Um, I also love to research I think if I wasn't doing so much storytelling, I would be working at least part-time as a researcher for folks. I'm kind of a Rottweiler on finding things. And um, I wanted in Hot Wind, Boiling Rain to give people the opportunity to do their own twisted tales. But to do that, you need to know the story. 
And so I tried to give um, what I could that might plant a seed for someone else to create their own story. Um, and that's just that's that's just also the way my mind works. I want to know if I can find it, the oldest version of a story, I can find the oldest storyteller who might have shared it. And of course, that's pretty much impossible to know the exact roots of a story, but I try to give as much of the information as I can to others, just so that they have the opportunity to perhaps look for other variants of the story or, or find their own way to share the story. So one of the things that really enjoyed about the book is that how um, different cultures have similar stories and these tend to come out uh, within the stories that you tell. Do you find that happens very frequently that a lot of different cultures have similar stories? Oh, yes. Um, the latest one that really surprised me was one that I told um, in Lit. It's um, about the creation of the dragonfly. And I had been trying to find the roots of the story. It had been given to me as a gift by uh, another storyteller, but she wasn't sure where it started. She had been told that it came from Romania. And then someone else said, no, it didn't come from Romania. There's a version of it from someplace else. And I tried to trace it and I found one from India. Um, and eventually I was told by an older woman that this was a story from her heritage. Uh, her heritage is the Rom, the gypsies. And that made perfect sense. As they would travel carrying the story, the story would go to others. And after I told the story in Lidditz, uh, which got a good response, made me feel really good, a woman came up to me and told me um, a Native American version of the story from the northwestern part of the United States. Uh, she, you know, very quickly gave me a snippet of it. And she said they had the same story with different animals in the story. So, um, yeah, I love finding the details, but this is why I'm saying um, the research. I could go on and on with research because many people will claim a story, but I don't think anyone can say uh, specifically where a story started. They may be able to, to speak of a cultural group uh, in a certain country on a certain continent, but they still don't have the exact specific place where that story began. It's such a fun rabbit hole to go down and explore, <laughs> for sure. Um, oh, yeah. So what inspired you to want to teach in the first place? Because you are just an incredible teacher already. So I'm curious where that started for you. Oh, thank you. Um, I don't know that I thought of it as teaching as, once again, here's a gift. Um, guess what I found out? Let me share it with you. I get excited about things like that. And so I think from the time I was a little one, I wanted to inform people. I don't know that. I mean, I know I was a ham around the family. I was kind of shy around people I didn't know, but I wanted to let folks know, guess what I found out? And I think that translates into some of the best teachers that I ever had. Um, look what I found here, you know, take this and run with it. They were doing more than just giving information. Um, to educate is actually to lead, guide, uh, direct someone 
toward more. And I felt that I had some teachers who did that for me and I learned from them as well as from um, my own mother who loved to tell you how to do things. <laughs> I, I learned to, um, to teach. Um, I, it should feel like play to me. It should feel like something exciting, um, something that makes a, another person want to know more. So I don't want to just give you details. I want to give you the opportunity to find out more for yourself or to realize whether or not you're even interested in something and go for yourself into um, whatever might appeal to you more. So that's the way I, I tend to do uh, workshops, um, keynotes, and um, whatever I'm giving to someone that isn't storytelling per se. Lynn, what is one moment you've experienced while teaching that has left you a lasting impression? Oh, goodness. Um, I was working with some fourth graders at a school where I did a residency for about 14 years in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. Um, I'd known the students since kindergarten. Each year we had storytelling time together over a period of anywhere from four to six weeks. And the last project would be for the fourth graders to create a story string upon which they would put personal story. That was the year we would concentrate more on personal story. And each bead or button or charm on their string would represent some moment of importance to them in their lives. So as they touched the story string, um, they had mnemonic symbols reminding them of the story. And some of the stories were so heavy that if they couldn't speak the story, they could hold up the string and say, this is my story, and they would still get applause. There was one child whose behaviors had changed since the third grade, and she wasn't as talkative. Uh, her grades were going down. And we got to the project of the story string, and she held hers up, and then she said, I can't. I can't. And I said, that's all right. Um, thank you for showing us your story. And she got her applause. Every storyteller deserves applause. But as we were going back down the hall to her class, um, she said, I have to tell, I have to tell. And she told of a horrendous tragedy that had occurred in her life and how she felt abandoned by it and how much she had lost. And her teacher, I saw tears in her teacher's eyes because here was the story that the child couldn't tell. It was just flowing out of her. And after she told the story, I said, thank you so much for being willing to share. That was a tough story to tell. How do you feel? And she said, tired. Aww. Well, once she had told the story, her grades started to improve. She started to talk more in the classroom. She started to laugh more in the halls. She ended the fourth grade um, on a much higher and happier note than she had begun it. But the teacher told me, had we not been sharing story, had I not been encouraging them to tell story, the teacher and none of the other um, educators in that building would have known what this child had gone through over the summer. And for me, that was the moment that just made me realize how important encouraging and teaching others to tell story 
really is, whether they speak it or write it. We all deserve for our own stories to be respected and heard. Yeah, very, very much so. And uh, I mean, for me personally, that's the same. It's very similar that I feel that that um, sometimes we hold these things inside of ourselves that on the because we don't express them, because we don't share them, they end up having a lot of power over us. They, yes. they repress us. They keep us kind of locked in place when we have these traumatic things that we've gone through. And for me personally, when I went through my own personal tragedies growing up, until I expressed it or understood it better and was able to express myself in, in, in public because I started doing poetry about my experiences and the things that I had gone through. Until I did that, it was really difficult process for me to heal and be able to express myself. And I find that now over time, um, the, you know, the more I gain power over that moment in my life by being able to express it publicly and, and, and to let that out, the easier it is for me to be able to write stories of my own and express myself and continue to grow in that way. Yes, it's, although I do tell a lot of traditional tales, I encourage people to share their personal stories, to find effective ways to share them. I think within the tra uh, traditional tales are analogies uh, that parallel what can happen in our lives. Mm -hmm. They're just shared in a way that makes them all oh, kind of generic. But when you have a story just held inside you without any opportunity to share it, it, it burns inside. These are the reasons for ulcers. And um, some, I, I feel, uh, a lot of high blood pressure and stress situations these stories haven't been honored and they haven't been shared. And I think that's why right now when people are sharing their personal stories and venues, uh, they're making strong connections with others, but they're also doing something that honors their own story, which I think is very, very important. And I think if we don't share um, of ourselves we do a disservice to this world that is becoming so small. Mm -hmm. The only way we're going to have peace in the world is to get to know one another and realize we do have similar stories and we do share um, impacts from our hearts. Uh, so, yeah, I think personal stories are some of the most important ones that can be shared, as well as the stories of our own families that give us a foundation for our lives. I could not agree more. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's the stories that we tell about what's going on in daily life. It's the stories that we hear that allow us to actually be engaged as human beings in a good way. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, and, uh, Oh, go ahead. Oh no. All, all the stories that I share usually have for me a personal connection, even if it's just doing the research about them. But I think that connects me with people just as much as sharing a story effectively when it's a folktale. I think the, the personal connection is just so important because I'll have um, little ones and I'll have elders who come up to me and they want to tell me their story or they remember something or they, they, they could relate to it in some way. 
Um, what advice can you give to someone who's interested in becoming a traditional storyteller? Um, be willing to do the work. Reading one story in one book doesn't give you the material and background that will make you an effective storyteller. Look for other versions of the stories. Listen to others who share the so-called traditional tales. Uh, do your homework on them. And then um, understand that you, you have to share it in a way that honors your participants, those who are listening and are there with you in the story, the story itself, as well as yourself. Don't try to be someone else. Be, as my, my pop-pops would say, be who you is, not who you ain't. Mm -hmm. So share from the heart, but make sure you're using your spoken word tools as effectively as you can and always be willing to do the research that gives you a good um, foundation, good roots for sharing the story. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Lynn, for coming on our show and sharing with us today. Thank you so much for letting me come on and run my mouth for a while. Of course. <laughs> and, and Lynn, where can our audience find more about you and your work? If they go to my website, www.storytellerlynnford.com, my schedule of public events, um, usually free public events, is there. Do you do any social media? I do. Um, I'm on um, Facebook. They can find me on Facebook. Um, they can also look for me um, at the uh, website of the Ohio Alliance for Arts Education. I'm going to start to try to <laughs> maybe blog. I don't know. But um, yeah, they can find me in those places for now. That works. <laughs> And for everyone listening, we will have links to everything that Lynn just mentioned in the show notes on our website. And along with a bunch of other resources, we're going to link to Lynn's books. And you have some videos of your storytelling on YouTube that we'll also link to so that people can check it out. Thank you so much. Of course. <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this is a good month for me. Yeah, I get to do some cooking and some cleaning, but I'll also be doing some laughter exercises and storytelling with the elders in some all, three Alzheimer's units. Aww, and I awesome. get to do a Blues Vespers um, stories and music um, this coming Sunday. So that'll be fun. That sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah. Plus, I, I can imagine after being on the road for the summer, it's nice to get home for a little while. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I can get the cobwebs finally. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I don't know. The spiders might have some new stories for you. <laughs> yeah, uh, no doubt. Anansi the spider is probably around here somewhere. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lynn, for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the program. Thank you so much, Lynn Ford, for being a part of our show. And thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed our show... Send us a tweet at Ninth Story Podcast. We had a very nice comment on Twitter about last week's episode by Dan Stout. That's at Dan Stout. And that is an awesome name, Dan Stout. <laughs> Dan wrote, listened during my afternoon break. Great episode. Also, 
Cruel Tricks for Dear Friends was one of the first books I bought as a kid. Glad to hear it get some love. Definitely a kind of a cult book in terms of secrets, etc. And now, even more so, I really want to go check out that book because after hearing Nelson talking about it and now Dan, it just sounds so cool. And that's a pen and teller book. Cruel Tricks for Dear Friends. It's a trick book. <laughs> awesome. Hey, Dan. We're really glad you're enjoying the show. So thank you again for listening. This has been the Ninth Story Podcast. I'm Immortal Alexander. And I'm Jeanette Andromeda. Stay creative, my friends. Bye, everyone. Bye. Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Three bags full. I stole them from the head of the man down the road. <laughs> he doesn't know Baba Black Sheep. I didn't even know that because Jeanette was saying it and it was really creepy. And I'm like, I don't think I've ever heard that actual song. I knew of it, but I've never heard it. Well, it definitely isn't normally whispered like that, nor is it stolen from the head of the man down the road. It's usually Baba Black Sheep. Have you any wool? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Three bags full. And then he like describes what the three bags are for. So yeah. you're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. Nightmare Can fuel. <laughs> Goodbye. Okay, bye. <laughs>